Welcome to the debate at Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman, and today we're joined by a uh, repeat guest. She's been on several different times, Amani Wells and Yoha. She is a political organizer and director of operations at Soul Strategies and a first time guest. We're so excited to have both of you here. May Mailman is a senior fellow with the Independent Women's Law Center. Ladies, welcome to the debate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So we found out yesterday that polling sometimes gets it right. And Georgia goes to the Democrats. So you had Raphael Warnock winning re-election and, of course, Herschel Walker losing a fairly slim margin, but, you know, significant enough. And so let's start with you, Amani. What do you make of the significance either of the election itself or of the impact for Democrats now carrying an actual majority in the Senate? Yeah, I think um, it was a good, solid win. Uh, like you said, it was a slim margin. So honestly, half the th- way through the night, it was like up in the air. It could really went either way, which had a lot of us biting our nails and a little bit nervous. Um, but now that we've secured that 51 to 49 little victory in the Senate, we can rely a lot less heavily on Cinema and Manchin, who have been a pain in the democratic behind um, for the past two years. So hopefully we can take advantage of this majority, do what we can with it, push a little bit more of a, um, a Biden's agenda through and have a strong finish over this next uh, term. So you're excited. Uh, <laughs> less things in jeopardy. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. May, how do you how do you read this, either the election or the implications going forward? Yeah, um, for me, this speaks to I know people like to talk about candidate quality, but I want to for me, it's about first time candidates. So I think on the Republican side, we had a lot of first time candidates running statewide. They had not built out an operation. They did not have experience. This was their first time, you know, in front of the media or in debates or just doing a lot of things like that. And, And it didn't work out pretty universally. So hopefully there's a lesson to be learned. I know nobody likes career politicians, but you know you do need some experience, and and I think that 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 would be helpful for Republicans moving forward. I know that Republicans are really trying to say this matters, this matters, this matters. You have to go out and vote because you know a 50-50 split is much different than uh, having for, but then actually being in the minority. And I agree with that to a certain extent, because uh, Vice President Harris can't break ties in the committee so they can just ram through nominations of much more liberal candidates than they otherwise would have. That said, they sort of could probably do that anyway. They just have to spend a lot more floor time in the Senate. So what this will do is allow Democrats to maybe move more quickly on their nominations agenda, but maybe that would have happened Anyway, so like the sadness for me was a month ago. It it's I'm not like newly sad today. I'm the same amount <laughs> that I was. You had already relatively resigned yourself to this anyway, <laughs> and the failure to red wave uh, had already sunk in for you pretty well. Yeah, Amani, do you? Because I had the same feeling. Like mm-hmm. when I think about the push to try to get Republican voters out and, you know, having read Newt Gingrich's piece at Newsweek, the argument is, well, it matters here and it matters here and it matters here. And also the two candidates are obviously very different people. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the average American or the average Georgian looking at this might care, but they've been through this so many times already, it seems. And they probably, I would imagine, thought, look, 50 50 with the VP or 51 49. Eh. What's the difference? What do you think? I think there was a little bit of that. I think 
a lot of the Republicans in Georgia might be disappointed just because they were hoping that Herschel will be able to align with a lot of their other faves, like how Ted Cruz was down there stumping for him. And they were hoping to get more of their agenda done or at least have more of a chance in blocking some of the stuff or being an obstacle, at least to some of the things that the Democrats were trying to do. It's a small margin. It's a small majority. But at the same time, like May was saying, we do have at least the opportunity to have a swifter um, change be affected in the Senate. But at the end of the day, it's only one seat. But I'm glad that it tipped this way. Um, Herschel was a go person, ahead, go ahead. at least. So, but thinking about it in the whole context of the election results now, right? You've mm-hmm. lost the House and got a majority in the Senate. Do you feel like you can get more or less done? I would think less with losing the House. Touche. I think it's really about being strategic and what it is exactly that he wants to do. He hasn't been super vocal about like this second half of his term. So not even a lot of us even know what's the number one things on the agenda. Is it going to be voting rights? Is it going to be a pathway to better access to health care? Is it going to be better funding education? Like what is it that he wants to be done in the Senate? Um, I'm assuming we're definitely going to do some nominations for the Supreme Court. But he I think right now he's kind of uh, on his high of like, okay we won we're here um and it's time to go back to the drawing board and really strategize and see how he can make an impact that's going to make people more likely to vote democrat again in 2024 so i think it's about being really strategic with that and not spending a lot of time on things that aren't relevant um like let's not get caught up in a lot of things that are theatrical and let's kind of spend more time on actually getting some legislation passed because we haven't been able to get through much of the agenda about maybe 10 or 15 percent of the things that he initially wanted to get done have gotten done so i'm hoping that they can just put their heads down and focus and work hard on getting more accomplished in these next two years how about you may when you think about you know the Senate's a true majority for the Democrats now, but, you know, the Republicans have the House. Do you feel like uh, the Republican agenda has more chance or less of the wrong things are going to happen? What's your kind of general take? I mean, I, I do think that everything comes to a standstill. I don't think anything really gets past the names and post offices and, you know, past some nominations. And that's about it. Um, you know, maybe that would be different if Republicans really needed to run on accomplishments come two years, you know, like, oh, look at this, you know, bill that we passed. But I think because uh, pre-pandemic American lives were so much better. I mean, you could point to gas prices, you could point to wages, you could point to inflation. So I think Republicans are really able to run on just, you know, pointing to a few years ago, and they're not really going to need to say, look at this compromise bill that I passed. Um, And because there's that lack of need, you're just going to, I think, see nothing get done. And and I've already seen a lot of articles say that's a really big positive. There's almost probably conservatives would agree more with that, but um, that the runaway spending um, that we've seen or just that type of of direction is going to at least be paused. And Americans do tend to like the status quo, um, even if they say they want change, like it, it is a little bit scary. So I, I do think that there's not going to be a penalty for doing nothing. And if anything, people will be boosted by doing nothing. Gridlock's better than a problem. And, you know, as a lot of people have observed, that if you had tried to design a government to create no results, well, you did a pretty good job with the one that we have. 
So I have a different slice of this question on uh, particularly the Georgia election, because uh, I don't live in Georgia. You know, I live in Florida and I don't follow a lot of the particular elections that are going on around the country. I'm watching city council meetings and stuff like that a lot of my time. So mm-hmm. my exposure to Warnock and Walker was pretty limited. I didn't watch their debate or any, you know, I didn't watch much, but I had an impression from watching TV news. And the impression I had from TV news was that Herschel Walker, or at least the portrayal was Herschel Walker was this, um, you know, football star who couldn't get his words right and had these scandals and, you know, really did a great job of saying incoherent things a lot. So I sat down and watched not much, but, you know, a five minute speech that he gave back warming up for Trump in May. And I thought, well, that's not the impression I got at all from the television. Do you guys feel like and I guess I'll start with you, Amani. Is it wrong to feel like the reporting on that race was unfairly harsh against him? Or am I am I too naive in my thinking about what TV news is going to do when it covers, <laughs> you know, senatorial candidacies? Yeah, um, I don't think it was unfair at all. I just think kind of we were just putting a lens on how the man is. And, you know, there were so many opportunities where we could hear him speak throughout this campaign trail where a lot of things that came up were just like irrelevant. Like he was going off on tangents about random things like it doesn't seem like he had a major platform or position of his own um i my interpretation of the race because i'm in dallas texas so i'm right up the road my dad lives in atlanta um so i was watching the race pretty closely and my interpretation is and Herschel Walker was picked just so that he can go along with whatever it was that the Republicans who were been in office longer, the Republicans who do have an agenda, have in mind. And he was selected because they thought he would be a very easy person who wouldn't have many big opinions of his own, who was just happy to be there and who would just go along with whatever it was that they wanted to do. Um, my main takeaway from Herschel wasn't that he was passionate really about anything, any kind of given way, especially because his lifestyle contradicted a lot of things that he allegedly stood for um he didn't even live in georgia he, he was here in texas dallas texas like that's where he was for 20 30 years of his life um and currently still resides uh primarily so i don't think that there was much unfair coverage i think they were just able to kind of see through the bs that's just May, what, what did you think of the uh, the portrayal and sort of what the implications of that might have been for people who were otherwise undecided uh, in the Georgia runoff. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The thing, the things that go viral were uh, sort of whenever Herschel Walker said something bizarre. But I think if you compare also to the Pennsylvania race, there you have uh, John Fetterman oftentimes saying things that are bizarre that you know could that really throw into question whether he's able to do the job of senator. And yet the media continued to downplay that. Um, and and ultimately, Fetterman ends up winning. So, yeah, you do have a maybe a smoother talking candidate in the Democrat in Georgia. But the media plays so much into this. What people remember out of Pennsylvania is crudite, like of all the things that uh, that come up, it's Dr. Oz talking about vegetables, which is totally irrelevant to the campaign. Um, not any of Fetterman's gaffes versus in Georgia, where you do you, all of a sudden you you just want to highlight, highlight, highlight all the Republican gaffes. You know, that said, 
I do think that part of this has to do with really having a machine. So you have Brian Kemp, who really has a better relationship with the media. He has a better relationship with the uh, voters. He has a better relationship with pollers. He's got, I mean, he has a machine in Georgia versus Herschel Walker does not. And so you can, I think, overcome some of that bias, but you have to work for it. You have to be there for a while and you have to earn the trust of people who are listening to you. And he just hasn't been there for long enough to earn that. Yeah, and uh, clearly, as you said right in the beginning, uh, Walker didn't have the experience of having done this before, and it's a pretty big spot to try to be going for it, you know, first time out the gate without having that vetting and, frankly, enduring it. You know, going through the process teaches you a lot of things about how to do it a little bit better the next time around. Since we're kind of talking about Georgia, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about this primary shakeup because this is, as I think the New York Times article was saying, you know, for the point zero 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 one percent of people who pay attention, this is seismic stuff. And it really is. President Biden has now proposed and apparently it's kind of on the verge of getting it. Uh, the shifting of the Democratic primaries from Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina to starting with South Carolina, then New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia and Michigan, um, and which would mean that they're running on a different primary schedule than the Republicans are which is its own kind of interesting question. Um, Amani, what what do you think about that choice? Is it even practical? We'll talk about that, I suppose. But, you know, as, as, a, as a, you know, as a Democrat, do you think this is a winning strategy for the Democrats? Um, my first thought when I heard this happening, I was like, that's weird. <laughs> like, that's just the first thing I thought. I was like, that's, that's weird. Like, I couldn't understand why we're doing this right now. So I'm not even one of the people that was like, oh, this is awesome. Let's figure out this what this is about. Like, I just thought it was strange and I thought it kind of came out of nowhere. So I've been wanting to just do my own research on it and just kind of understand better what the purpose is. Um, because sure, we can revisit that. Yes, these elections have been held the same exact way for 50 plus years. And there's a lot of things that we can do to make over the process to make it more fair and all of that. Um, but do I think it should be like a decision that was just made like a thief in the night that we all just go along with? No, I think we should explore it. We should understand it better um, because we don't want to set the president or the precedents that anybody can just up and do this whenever. Um, so that was probably my biggest concern. So I would like to continue to just understand more about his decision making process. But I do know when we're being just a little honest, he did very well there um, in South Carolina. He it was favored there as a primary candidate. So it does seem a little self-serving that that's the way that he wants to go about it. I hope that's not the case. I would like to hear more about the thought process and more of the details. But that's my initial uh, reaction from hearing about it. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if he were intending to run again and were mm -hmm. intending to structure the thing in a way that would be most beneficial to him, this is a great move. He's never done okay. well in Iowa. And mm -hmm. uh, Iowa, ha you know, they kind of earned their problems, right? They they botched it pretty good in 2016 with the paper trail and 2020 with the, the digital meltdown. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. it's not like you don't have arguments to be made here. But May, he makes the argument that this gives black voters in South Carolina and also Georgia, right, more prominence um you know georgia is now officially a swing state right so it seems to be i don't know more rational to pick your candidates based on how they perform in the states where it could go either way where there's a lot riding on the outcome what did you think of this move yeah i mean well first i agree like iowa picked mayor pete as the their primary winner. So like you have now lost your right to be the picker for the nation. Um, but yeah, you know, 
I do hope we live in a world someday soon where there's not such a thing as black voters or white voters, like that there should just be a Democratic Party base and that everyone should try and like have prosperity for their country, for themselves, for their neighbors. So it's like problematic to me a little bit that we're like trying to figure out segments of society. Like I want this segment to have a greater voice than another segment. Like what about Latino voters? What about Asian voters? What about women? Like it just, it, I think it gets complicated, but um, anyway, I, if, if we're going to try and do segments and we want to have like different segments have a say, I actually do like pushing Michigan up further. I think Michigan's a little bit interesting because it's kind of a microcosm of America. You do have urban centers, you've got Detroit, but then you've got very rural areas. Um, so you've got some manufacturing, you've got some farming. So you've got people who are interested in immigration and cheap labor, but you've also got people who are anti-China. Like, I think Michigan would be what I would try, you know, if I wanted to make sure everybody had like a, a better say than the very rural white voter potentially and the sort of, I guess, uh, educated hipster voter of Iowa, Um I would probably look to Michigan more so than South Carolina, um, just because it's got a more diverse mix. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me to think about what would be sort of the best way to structure this. And um, I, I've I've long held the view that the way we do primaries is nuts <laughs> because it's so much power given to you know mm. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and why them specifically. Uh, what I've often thought would make more sense would be to have basically like four super regionals, a northeastern 13 states, a southeastern, a northwestern, and then basically, you know, do four uh, Super Tuesdays. And you could even rotate. I would advocate for rotating that schedule. You know, one primary session you go, the northwest goes first. And that would be, to me, more fair. But also it would allow people to campaign in a larger area without campaigning the whole country. And I don't know, something about that appeals to me, but I'm open to suggestions. Uh, if you guys were to sort of reform the process, uh, do you have an idea of how you'd like to do it? I'll go to you, May, because I, I know you've clearly had a lot of thoughts about this. I don't want to interrupt you, but any, any thoughts about how the process could be done in a better way? No, I, you know, I, I do think the system is flawed. I think, um, I, I tend to like the idea of rotating, but I also like the idea of picking states for early primaries that are cheaper to campaign in. So it gives everyone a real um, advantage. So I think one of the points that's been raised is uh, when you have New Hampshire, that's a very expensive market because it's all Boston media. If you have Nevada early, very expensive because all the media is Las Vegas. So to try and pick a state that has, and I live in Ohio, so like maybe like Ohio that has Columbus versus Cleveland versus Toledo versus Sandusky versus Appalachia, you know, that has a, a cheaper and more spread out market. So that it's not just a money game because when you pick these states that just have one big expensive media market, it is all about money, and that's kind of distasteful as how far you're going to pick your primary candidate. I am guessing, Amani, you agree with at least that principle, that you'd love to see something that allows a little more even playing field without having to come to the table with massive financial resources? 
Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of people don't even attempt to run for president because it is such a daunting task. Um, one, it's the highest office in the land. So even just having the confidence to even try to try uh, run for something like that takes a lot. But the resources that you have to have access to and the finances that you have to have access to is nothing small. It's nothing cute. It is something that is going to be millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that is something that a lot of Americans, as we know, just don't have access to. There's no, you know, grandfather or no uh, fairy godparent that can come swoop in and, you know, give them all these funds necessary to run. So um, setting it up in a way that we can give more people access and maybe do like a matching funds type of situation like they have um, in a lot of these other states, like in Washington, um, in New York, in Colorado, there's a lot of matching funds or fair funds um, to give people who typically don't have the opportunity to raise a lot of money a match from the federal government that can help them, you know, raise enough or have enough access to money to maybe do more in the race than they would have otherwise. So I think there's a lot of ways that we could potentially go about it, but I think it's something we need to be really thoughtful about um, and really sincere in our intentions about. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you say, it would be great to have a, you know, a real strategy about what's the best way to do this. And unfortunately, I think what happens is, you know, we're all those of us who care about this stuff, uh, we yeah. get very excited about it almost like after the fact when it happens and then we forget for three and a half years and then oh, yeah. oh forget, we're stuck with this same crummy system all over again. And, <laughs> you know, how do we do it? I'm particularly curious to see if Biden and the Democrats can pull off the switch yeah. because, you know, they're going to have to pay for their, as I understand it, you know, the state controlled by the GOP is going to run on the Republican date and they're going to have to run their own separate primary in South yeah. Carolina, at least. And just the logistics of separate primaries for Republicans and Democrats is a nightmare at best. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about something that I know is uh, very close to uh, at least one of our guest's hearts. <laughs> and I think both of them will find it fascinating. The uh, teachers unions and whether they're relevant these days or whether they're getting in their own way. I'm Andrew Tallman. This is The Debate from Newsweek. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Debate. I'm Andrew Tallman. We're joined today by Amani wells and Yoha and May Mailman. May, you recently wrote a column at Newsweek talking about the relevance or not of teachers unions in 2022 and the problems that they create for students and overall education quality in America. Do unions, well, did they ever serve a purpose for teachers and do they still serve any purpose in your mind? So I, you know, the purpose I guess, right, is is to make sure that teachers, just like the purpose of any union, um, have 
collective bargaining power to set reasonable wages, reasonable hours, break time, support staff, that type of thing. And so in theory, no one's against that. Everyone wants teachers to have reasonable wages. Everyone wants them to have pens, pencils, notebooks, you know, and so on. But the problem with teachers unions, as with many public sector unions, is that the they're they're not bargaining against their employer really because the employer is you and I it's the taxpayer instead they're bargaining with a superintendent who they have funded to win the superintendent's race and so what you've seen is a lot of bad incentives so especially during the pandemic i think the tide turned on public opinion as far as uh teachers unions so my piece exposes a little bit which is you know, we've seen that lockdowns were bad. And then come the beginning of this school year, where finally kids got to go back, you saw teachers unions striking. So kids, again, going back to online learning in several major cities. Um, And, you know, now that we know how bad online learning has been for especially low income kids, And then when you look at what the teachers unions have done in those cities, like Columbus, like Seattle, uh, very few students are even passing reading and math. It's in the like the low 20 percent are just passing, not six, not, you know, excelling, but just at grade level where they're supposed to be. And so it is kind of funny that you want a raise, you want to be incentivized, you want more money, you want more things, even though you haven't produced good results. And so maybe instead of incentivizing unions, incentivizing this structure, we should really rethink how it is we're going to improve outcomes for students, which ultimately is going to be better for teachers because teachers get paid uh, when there's more taxes and there's more taxes when everybody has jobs and, you know, you've got successful students. But when you've got schools just failing students, failing students and everybody's unemployed and everybody's on the streets, you, of course, you're going to have a bad, bad school system. So we really need to figure out how to get more money in the system by having more successful people. I know loads of teachers who are either leaving or threatening to leave the system because they don't make enough money. They're frustrated. They feel like nobody respects what they do. Maybe lip service. Yes, but, you know, not much more than that. And they see the problems with the students coming to them ill prepared and on and on. Amani, how much of the challenges and really the inadequate outcomes that we're seeing in education, how much of that is because of the existence of unions per se and how much of it is other factors? Um, I think unions play a very tiny piece in this overall education problem that we're having right now. So I come from a long line of teachers. Uh, My mom was a teacher. My aunt is a teacher. Both my cousins are teachers. I taught for a while. We've been in the wells. This has been in education for over 30 years here in Texas. And it's something that we've been able to see. My mom taught kindergarten for 27 years um, before she passed away. And I've seen her put her blood, sweat and tears into this job to where she was only making at the very most as a almost 30 year veteran teacher, $40,000 a year. Um, So it goes to the bottom issue of these, the schools are not funded well. And it's only so much a teacher can do with the best intentions with um, classes out of ratio is a huge thing that my family is dealing with right now. You have one teacher who has 30 to 40 kids in a classroom. It's only so much that you can do as one person. There's no aids, there's no substitutes, and there's no support. The books are falling apart. When I was teaching in Dallas ISD, some of these books were from 2007, from when I was in school. I graduated (laughs) high school in 2011. Why am I teaching 
elementary school kids with books from 2007 like it's just a complete underfunding of the system and the teachers are you know they're at their wits end because there's truly only so much they can do with so little resources um so i think we just need to rethink what the teachers duties are um, and giving them the support that they need to educate these kids a lot of stuff also has to do with what is required of students and teachers um like may said a lot of these kids are failing their classes but it's because particularly i'll speak for texas um you have things like the tax test the stars test you have all of these assessment tests that are uh, mandated by the state and the teachers have to spend most of their curriculum teaching kids things to pass this test instead of teaching them how to write, how to read, um, helping them really nourish their minds in a way that is going to be effective for them for years and years to come. They're so wrapped around fitting the curriculum to pass this specific standardized test that it takes away from really giving the kids an opportunity to be educated to the highest level. Um, so the system is completely eroded from the inside out. And I've seen a lot of people, I just saw my cousin who has been passionate about art since she came out the womb. That woman is talented and she had to walk away one because she's an out uh, gay um, woman and she's working in Texas. So there was already a lot of um, looks and stuff for that. And then the other thing is her students, she was completely out of ratio for her entire last year teaching. And she asked for help multiple, multiple times. And there was really nothing that they could do because there's vacancies in all of these districts because so many teachers are leaving. Um, so there's a big, big problem in education. I know I said a lot, but there's a lot of things that need to be addressed on how we can kind of get this problem under control. Yeah. And I, by the way, I, I feel your comment about the old books. It's how I, you know, when I talk to some of my friends with the military and their pilots and, you know, they're flying the bomber that their dad flew, <laughs> you know, like that's, <laughs> you know, reading the books that my my, my mom was teaching or whatever. Um, <laughs> May, you know, when you kind of think about this challenge, you know, in Florida, we've moved away from some of that uh, testing to a little bit different scheme precisely because of that concern. But the pandemic brought out other stuff, too, like mm -hmm. the pandemic. A lot of parents, particularly conservative parents, feel like suddenly things were revealed <laughs> that were going on in education that they didn't feel like they even knew about. And having angry parents on top of low pay and poor resources and sort of difficult circumstances in the community it it does seem like a perfect storm plus with a short labor market where everybody's in demand anywhere you go you can make more driving a truck for sure not that there's anything wrong with that but you can immediately go get your, your your cdl and you can make more money than a teacher and not have to deal with any of that stress how do we fix that problem may yeah well you know if teachers unions actually were just really there to improve the the classroom setting, then I think you would see them try and recruit and retain high performing teachers. But instead, you often see more administrative staff and things like that that don't actually go and help teachers. So you want the, the people who have been there for 20 years, 30 years, who are doing a great job, who really should be rewarded. Those people should be making a ton of money. Those should, people should absolutely be incentivized. And yet teachers unions want to treat everybody the same. There's this lockstep competition or compensation. So you don't actually have the cream of the crop being benefited. And I think that that type of system would be you know, helpful for teachers. You feel like you're being seen. You feel like you're being rewarded right now. If you're a great teacher. So I was a teacher also for a little while. If you're doing a great job, then maybe you get to be like, 
the chair of the reading committee, you know, there's something like that. It's just, no, no, no. I want it $5,000. It's not even, I want a million dollars. I just want some small amount of money, but that type of rewarding good behavior is just not what you see with unions. Um, unfortunately. And I think that if you, if you really want that system, what a lot of states are doing is they are increasing their school choice. That way teachers, if they feel like that this school, this public school system, yeah, I've got a lot of angry parents. Uh, I feel like I've got administrators or a union that doesn't have my back. I can make more money at this other school. At this other school, parents feel like they're being looped in a little bit more. They feel like they're being heard a little bit more. Um, you know, I think that school choice is good for good teachers too. It's bad for bad teachers, um, but it is good for good teachers. Um, and hopefully that trend will continue. And, and that's kind of been the uh, the conservative argument for years, right, is on the one hand, uh, more competition within the ranks of the public school teachers where you're rewarded for being excellent and, you know, maybe punished is the wrong word, but, you know, not as rewarded if you're not very good at what you do. Uh, and the po- the problem, you know, the ability to get rid of teachers who really shouldn't be teaching at all. And then competition from outside in terms of whether it's homeschooling or private schooling or something like this, which, again, we saw during the pandemic, there was a dramatic move towards homeschooling uh, because once parents kind of saw that it could be done on remote and what the difficulties were at the school, oh, maybe we'll try this. Uh, Monty, do you that's kind of the argument from the conservative side. Do you see value in more of the rewards and punishments competition kind of model as opposed to the the teachers union model that we see now? Um, I so multiple thoughts um the teachers union i agree that they are not doing enough to advocate for the teachers so that is one piece in itself that i do think if you're going to be unionized you should be able to get the full benefits of that which is uh bettering your life and your opportunities and your health and all of that so i agree on that um the my biggest problem with the push to privatize schools is corruption um education is often funded by the government by local government officials by politicians um and when those people People in the private sector pay off certain people to get them on their side, to get them to vote their way, then it takes money away from an already um, inebriated and destitute, broke down system that needs love and funds. Um, so the more that we incentivize people, oh, just go over here, we can go to this school, that school may be better, but who all has access to that school? Can everybody afford to go to that school? Is the government going to pay for certain kids to go to that school? Are they going to be able to get in because of an academic standard? Are they going to have to be able to pay a certain amount in tuition? What about the kids who deserve a higher education, but maybe they aren't, um, they don't have the capacity to get in on a scholarship? Are they supposed to be just left abandoned and to fight for themselves in this super underfunded or even further underfunded public school? Are we supposed to not give those students a chance just because they may not be able to go elsewhere? Um, so I think, yes, we can have choices, but they need to all be equally funded. They need to all be equally represented and we need to have equal and fair choices. The public school system should be able to stand up right now next to the private school system as a matter of funds, access, and resources, and then we can compete on which is better. But if we're going to have a system that's like this, then we're only going to see our kids slip away even further and become less educated over time. You know, it's kind of interesting. We uh, we have people who, uh, you know, come from very different viewpoints, uh, but as often happens on the debate, we're seeing a fair amount of at least a civil discussion and probably agreement on a lot of this stuff. And uh, just so it doesn't go unsaid, I did teach for about 10 years, not <laughs> at the K-12 level. I taught college, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, very familiar. And, you know, we homeschooled, um, you know, really my wife homeschooled, but, you know, we homeschooled our kids. And 
it always grinded me that I had to pay property taxes to go fund a system that I thought was not doing a good enough job of teaching that I needed to bring my kids at home where we paid for everything, <laughs> you know, and that that always I, I that always graded on me that that was uh, just kind of an inequity in the system. But when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Time Magazine has announced their person of the year. Kind of an interesting choice. We'll talk about whether they made the right one or not. Plus a couple of fun topics, because that's always like how we like to end the debate here on Newsweek. I'm Andrew Tallman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. Welcome back to the debate at Newsweek. All right, we've got Amani Wells and Johan May Mailman. And uh, something that just happened today, we had a pretty quick, these are the finalists for the time person of the year. The rundown was uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, Chinese President Xi Jinping, former U.S. Representative Liz Cheney, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Mackenzie Scott, formerly married to Jeff Bezos, now considered a philanthropist in her own right, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Elon Musk, who was last year, but certainly has made enough news to be considered again in the conversation. <laughs> Gun safety advocates as a category, Iranian protesters as a category, and the United States Supreme Court. I will tell you, when I saw this list, I immediately assumed the United States Supreme Court would win for the Roe versus Wade overturn. I turned mm -hmm. out to be wrong. It was Volodymyr Zelensky, a choice I don't think anybody can really say is a bad choice or disagree with but uh let's start with you may out of that list who would you have wanted to win this i suppose dubious i mean award that's like governor DeSantis, yeah hands down <laughs> you know all day next year too so uh. in the election why weird okay all right fine <laughs> <laughs> so you so uh governor DeSantis should have been can you criticize i mean the, the choice to make it Zelensky makes sense though right 100% within this calendar year you have one of the major crazy events of uh modern Amer modern world history with the invasion of Ukraine and he has certainly been the newsworthy person right he's certainly newsworthy so i, I guess that that qualifies one for being person of the year that said i think there is something to be criticized i mean here we are still in this without any off-ramp known and his people are suffering and dying and so yes it is russia's fault so i guess putin was not person of the year although he's equally responsible for making the news if newsworthiness is actually what we're looking for you'd think actually it'd be putin but um you know, as far as Zelensky, it's just like, OK, here, you know, I think there is something to, be cr to criticize, which is 
Where's the accounting of the American funds that have gone over? Where's the accounting of the American weapons that have gone over? What is our off-ramp? Are you, you know, do you have your people's interest in mind, their lives with an off-ramp? Or are you trying to seek the Vogue cover and the Time magazine cover and, you know, speak at the UN General Assembly and promote yourself. And so I see a lot of self-promotion there, which makes me a little bit concerned about whose interests he has in mind. So, you know, I think there's plenty to criticize there. I love when I find agreement when I didn't expect to and disagreement when I didn't expect to. So I appreciate that. Amani, uh, did the choice surprise you? Who did you think either should have or would uh, be the person they picked? Yeah, there were some interesting choices for sure. I'm looking at the list that you just said. I'm like, okay, um, I understand. Like I said, I understand why they chose him. The Iranian women, that would have been probably my choice because them poor babies over there then had it hard all year. They've been killing them. It's been like really kind of devastating just to watch. So it would have been nice to kind of shine a, a further light on that. Like May was saying, we've heard a lot about the Ukrainian war. So we know about it. I understand it. It's not his fault that they got invaded. You know, <laughs> like it's a really unfortunate situation that is just gross. Like nobody likes war. Um, so I see why they chose him. But there were other there were other people that could have been picked. But it's not a bad choice. And if it was going to, as you say, if it was going to advance some cause or reward something, then, you know, more more productivity and featuring the, you know, the protesting women of Iran, who, by the way, just as a super side note, I still can't get over the idea that. Iran duped all of American media for about 10 hours the other day into believing that they had gotten rid of the morality police. And yes. you had the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and CBS's mm-hmm. Face the Nation running with the story that turned out to be essentially propaganda yeah, <laughs> from the Iranian true. regime. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Last thing here, we always like to end with something that's just a little bit fun. I uh, never know whether it's going to be big and conf- conflict-based or just plain uh, entertaining. I hope it can be all of that. So <laughs> a, qu- a couple of questions about Christmas, all right? So let's start with you, Amani. Uh, not Christmas particularly, but the cold weather. Um, the cold weather drink of choice for a lot of people is hot chocolate. But the question is, with your hot chocolate, mm-hmm. what do you put in it? Do you... You know, big marshmallows, little marshmallows, whipped cream, alcohol, uh, nothing whatsoever, naked hot chocolate. Like, what's your preference? What's the right way to serve the hot chocolate? Um, so holiday time, me and my family, we like to turn up. Okay. Um, so this was at my house. There would absolutely be like some maker's mark, some whiskey or something in that hot chocolate. We would be chugging it all, doing a big cheers and having us a grand old time. That's what we did at Thanksgiving. It was lit. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not that it's not what's on top. It's what's inside. May hot chocolate, appropriate way to serve it. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that. Um, (laughs) So I uh, had a baby. Y'all just invite me when you do this though. I want to be there when it's happening. When the two of you are together drinking. Anyway, go ahead, May. Yeah. I've been pregnant for the past nine months. Just had a baby two weeks ago. So I can't like Christmas. And like a festive beverage, a festive hot chocolate. I've been dreaming of this moment for so long. Um, yeah, we're it'll be like ninety percent whiskey, ten percent hot chocolate. Just a drip of hot chocolate, <laughs> drizzle of the hot chocolate. Congratulations, by the way. I didn't know you recently <laughs> had a baby. That's that's fantastic. All right, second question: Caroling. Does it even happen anymore? And is it still cool and wonderful and 
entertaining or is it kind of creepy to have a bunch of strange kids coming to your door singing songs to you when it's cold outside? May, let's start with you. So I don't know whether it happens anymore because now I live in Cleveland and I grew up in a small town of 4,000 people. So it's really not creepy when you live in that small of a town because you're going to know the person who is in front of your door. Um, And so you can walk around and go to businesses, I think. Like there, there actually was a main street, you know. So I assume that my hometown still does it i think i think it's a great thing like now even just singing to my baby like to know this the words to all the songs i love being able to have like something that i can share with a national community we all know rudolph the red-nosed reindeer you know so i i love the idea of crawling that said in a big city in cleveland if somebody came to my door and started singing at me i would be i would hate i would hate it I think in the post-COVID era, when we're kind of accustomed to just ignoring people at the doors, <laughs> you know, just uh, shh, go away. They won't know we're here. Amani, you like caroling? You miss it that it doesn't happen more often? What do you think? Um, LOL. I've actually didn't. I think I actually I was about to lie. I've gone caroling maybe one time when I was like in elementary school, and that was the you last. Need time. more makers, Mark, in the uh, hot we chocolate need, is what. Hey, needed. we can really sing. We can dance. We can <laughs> sing, we can parade through the streets. Um, I feel like it would be cool. Maybe we should do that this year. I don't know how I would feel if people came to my house because you know people are crazy these days. It could all be a ploy, right? Um, but I think I'll tell the fam to do it. And we might go do it through our neighborhood this year. That's how I do. Yeah, I, I, I've i always thought it's a wonderful community thing. And I wish it were done more. I just don't want to be the one doing it. <laughs> I want to be the one enjoying it more than anything else. Well, that's all the time we have for the debate today. Thank you to May Mailman and Amani Wells and Yoha. You both have been delightful. It's wonderful to talk with you. Uh, we'll talk next time on the debate from Newsweek. <laughs>